That's who we are. That's who we want to be. We want to be centered and uh, have a functional understanding of the gospel. We want to love one another as family. We want to invite people in to the family as they know Jesus. Now, the where is, although we rent space from Gathering Place Foursquare Church, this space here on Sundays, the church is not a building. It's a body. So we are in our communities, whether that be Auburn, Kent, Des Moines, Burien, SeaTac, Seattle, Federal Way, missing any cities? I don't think so. Normandy Park. Uh, we are wherever we are. This is, we are in our communities. And, and what we do together is our mission. That's the what. And this is, we tried to make this simple enough that we can repeat it and know it. And, and hopefully, if you've been with our church a little bit, you know uh, we exist to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and plant churches. That's what we exist to do. And we do this because of our why, our values. Why, what, what do we value? Why do we value? And, and this is where we see the Holy Scriptures, the gospel, uh, community, and mission. This is what the four messages that in July is what we went over these core values. Um, and the when. Th- these are our measurables. And we looked at that question, what does it look like and sound like? So what does it look like or sound like for a church to value the scriptures? Our, the gospel, our community, our mission. And what we're going to do this morning is talk about singing. So we'll look like, what is a church that values singing, and how does that fit into this framework this morning? Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, so what we want to do is we, run, we want to run all that we do through this framework. And again, like I said, I, did, I just did this brief summary, but Will does a better job of explaining it in the message in July. And what we want to do this morning is explain <laughs> corporate worship through song. And the elders and I want to provide a brief background and context on why we're doing this so that you don't think today's message is somehow, I have this bee in my bonnet about singing, and I want you to sing more. Although that, you know, I'm not going to argue with that, but that's not the reason. I don't have this bee in my bonnet, and I'm just giving this to, to guilt you, trip you about singing. In fact, in August, after our study through Galatians, we're going to unpack two more things that we do in our Sunday gathering, specifically in line with our mission and our values, um, and that is preaching and how we preach and teach, and prayer. So that's something that we have to look forward to in in August. Uh, But let's talk about worship through song, shall we? Let's see what God's word says about that. Why do we sing? And how do we sing? What importance does singing have? Now, if you're this morning, you might be some, and you might be in this boat that say, singing is the most important thing. Like, I'll endure a sermon so that I can get to the singing. When I'm looking for a church, I'm looking for really good music. Like, I, that's what I'm looking for. There's others who endure the singing because they want to get to the preaching, right? And singing is not really like, I could go without it. In fact, maybe I'll even stroll in 10 minutes late. So I happen to miss the first couple songs, and I can just get there for the preaching. For some, singing is weird and lame. The idea of gathering together with strangers and singing together is, is kind of different. I mean, we don't maybe naturally do this apart from a concert venue, right? Like in school, we don't sing. We have lectures and we get teaching, right? We do this in university. Our Apple computers does this when they make keynote presentations. There's, there's preaching, there's, there's teaching, but why do we sing and, and what importance does it have? So if you have your Bible, let me invite you to grab, uh, grab it and open it to Colossians chapter 3, verses 16. We're going to look at what God's Word says about singing. If you don't own a Bible, I think there's one left on the bar uh, in the room over here. I need to grab some more, but we'd love to gift you with a copy of, of the Scriptures, God's Word. And we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, verses 16. Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, it's found in the New Testament. It should be in the last couple hundred pages of your Bible. It's right after the book of Philippians, right before the book of 1 Thessalonians. 
And uh, out of sign of respect, why don't we stand as the word of God is read aloud? Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You may be seated. Now, to provide a little context for, the, for this verse, uh, Paul wrote the, this letter to the church of Colossae to protect the church against false teachers and teachings that were trying to impose strict laws about eating and drinking and religious festivals. And Paul wrote this letter to describe the preeminence of Christ, that he's superior to all human traditions and philosophies. And Paul's encouraging the church not to be deceived or distracted by human philosophies and traditions. He's encouraging them to focus on heavenly things. And just as they have the, they've received King Jesus, they should walk in his ways. At the end of chapter 2, Paul asks, If you have died with Christ, you've died to the, element, the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? He begins in chapter 3 and says, If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Seek Christ and his things. And then he lists out a series of commands on what not to do meaning put to death what is evil, and list out a commands of what to do. Put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and forgiveness. He says in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together. He says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. And then we get to verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And what I want to do this morning is just unpack verse 16. What does this mean? And unpack it word by word, some key words and some phrases that we see in this passage. So let's start with the word of Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Well, the word of Christ is another way of referencing the words about Christ, or the very words of Christ. It's a reference to his teaching. And for Paul, in the context of this church, this would have been the teachings about Christ and the words of Jesus that were passed down through oral tradition, through discipleship, through the preaching and teaching of the apostles and the letters that were circulated through the churches. For us, as we have the New Testament canon that's formed, this would be uh, the words that are about Christ, the words of the gospel uh, that we found in our New Testament. And this word of Christ, these words about Jesus and the gospel are to dwell in us. They are to reside in us. They're to make its dwelling in our hearts. They're to fill our hearts, our relationship, our churches, our teaching, and our correcting. And Paul's argument is that because Christians have been united with Christ and made alive with Christ, that their lives have been hidden in Christ, that they want the peace of Christ to rule their hearts, they want the word of Christ to dwell in their hearts. This is the argument. This is what he's building out here. And it's not just supposed to dwell in us, but dwell in us richly. That word can mean extreme degree, very generous, in abundance, in great amount. And as the word of God is dwelling in us in abundance, we teach and correct in wisdom and we sing with thankfulness and gratitude. And from the verse, we have to ask the question, now, are, are teaching and correcting and singing, are those all three different things? Like, do we do some teaching, and then we do some correcting, and then we do some singing? I mean, how do these three relate together? 
And when studying the Bible, I think it's helpful to, to sometimes read different translations to see how, how they make sense or, or translate this verse. And I usually turn to two translations, the New American Standard Bible that is often abbreviated the NASB, and a new one that I've enjoyed reading lately that's come out recently in 2017, the Christian Standard Bible. And this is how they say it. I think it's helpful and brings some clarity to what Paul is referencing here. New American Standard Bible says it like this. Let the word of Christ dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to your hearts, in your hearts to God. So we're teaching and correcting with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You get that? Christian Standard Bible says like this, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So I think those translations are helpful in, in, in light of what the English Standard Version says. So the teaching and the correcting happen through or with singing. That's pretty cool. That's helpful in understanding how these all work together. The teaching and admonishing are not somehow different from singing. The singing is a form of teaching and correcting. So in this way, Paul is saying that the teaching and admonishing and wisdom express the means of how the word of Christ is to dwell in us, and the singing and the gratitude express the manner of this teaching and correcting. Does that make sense? So when this letter was written almost 2,000 years ago, remember that they didn't have smartphones. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have reading rainbow. So a lot of people, they couldn't read, and, and things were passed on through oral tradition, and it was much more of an oral culture as compared to our, what you could call, screen-heavy, our more visual culture. So songs were a very important way of passing down teachings about Jesus and good doctrine. It was a way of correcting false doctrine. The singing and the lyrics were very important. They helped people remember God's word and the story of God's redemption. You look back in the Old Testament and, and God instructs the people to sing. In fact, he gives Moses a song in Deuteronomy 13, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 32. And Moses is supposed to write and teach a song to Israel to help them remember the covenant. We see this in, ex, in Exodus 15 as well. The, the people to get together and they sing. It's, it's a way of remembering and trying to not forget what God has done for us. And I would submit to you that although it's 2,000 years later, and there are many things that are different about our cultures and our society, singing is still just as important in, in our day now. Singing helps us remember. Music and song lyrics have a way of sticking with us. They have a way of moving us and, and help us remember things, right? It's the reason that you can listen to the radio and hear a song that you haven't heard in a while and, and out of nowhere just start singing the lyrics along to it. It's the reason that stupid jingles, like, uh, I just forgot the jingle, actually. That's just... <laughs> right? 87588 empire right? Those little stupid jingles, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And it's the reason that McDonald's, Kit Kat, Subway, they, right, they know the power of song. They know the power of these little jingles. Right? It's the reason that you can leave this morning. And tomorrow, you can forget what the sermon was on. And that's not a guilt trip, right? That's not a, a blame game. I, if I don't look at my notes like from a couple weeks ago, I probably wouldn't remember what I preached on. But we can sing a song, and, and that song can stick with us throughout the week, can't it? We can sing that song as, 
as we're going through our week and uh, we help our children learn the alphabet through singing. Singing has something that's powerful about it. So singing is a great form of teaching and correcting. And Paul commands the church in Colossae, the Colossian church, to sing. So specifically, how do we apply these truths as a church? How do we seek to obey this command to praise him, and specifically in our context and setting? And did you notice what Paul didn't say in Colossians 3.16? He didn't say how much we're to sing or how many songs we're supposed to sing, right? The command is simply to sing. In fact, when you read throughout the New Testament, you see there's not really a, a preferred biblical order of service, like one, sir, one song, prayer, two songs, sermon, three songs, close. You don't find that in the New Testament. What you do find is Paul commands that everything should be done to build up the church. What you do find specifically is a command that everything should be done with order and, and decency. So whether a church sings 10 songs or one songs, one songs, one song, whether it's a cappella or a 10-piece band, whether it's hymns only or gospel music or hip-hop, the point is that Christians are commanded to sing, Right? Everything should be done in corporate worship is to be done in order. And, and this is why typically in our Sunday gathering, we sing two songs. We preach for 30 minutes to 45 minutes. I've been trying to cut them. I've been trying to cut them. And this is not because we think it's the most biblical. This is because we simply have found this to be an order of service. Our liturgy, you might say. A way that's done in order. We don't want you to be surprised. You come in and all of a sudden now we're, thinking, we're singing 30 songs Although I kind of wanted to do that during this sermon, just to say, like, let's not preach about singing. Let's just sing for an hour, right? I don't know if some of you guys would be up for that. Maybe after this sermon you will, though, huh? All right. Well, in light of the importance of singing and how we view it as a church, uh, we really view this as a form of teaching and correcting. So for those who, who come and, and sing and lead from the stage, we, we have a high bar on that. We have high expectations for uh, our music team and those who stand up front and help lead the church in worship through song, we, we really view it as a position of leadership. Now, we do not view the music team as simply as a group of people who just are happen to tied together by, by music. We, we view them as examples of, of character and commitment to the church and demonstrating a desire to live out of the core values of being rooted in the scriptures and centered in the gospel and committed to community and engaged in the mission of God. And and we know this is different than how other churches might view the music team, right? Where, hey, Stephanie, you can sing a little bit. Come on. Or, hey, Phil, you can play the guitar, right? Why don't you join us on stage? There's, we want to have some sort of uh, leadership capacity and, and demonstration of example on being up front, right? I'm sure we've all been a part of a church. I've been a part of a church where it doesn't really matter, right, the commitment or understanding of the mission or vision of the church, right? If you have some sort of musical talent, you're just going to be thrown up there. I don't want to say that's wrong, but that's just, we haven't agreed as a church to do that. Does that make sense? I just want to provide a little bit of understanding on, on why we do that. I would rather have someone who is committed to godly character and committed to the church and leaders who are leading by example than having some sort of production that I want to present. I care more about godly character and commitment and, and, and leadership. There's higher expectations for those who lead through song. So that's how we seek to apply this command. Make sense? Everyone with me? Still with me? So Colossians 3.16 is one of the clearest commands in the New Testament that we have to sing. 
We are to sing the word. We are to sing it with gladness and with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. The Apostle Paul gave a similar command to the church in Ephesus when he wrote, as recorded in Ephesians 5.18, Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So whether we're filled with the Spirit or filled with the Word, we're to sing. I, thought that, I, th- I think that's interesting as we think about as the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, we sing. As we're filled with the Spirit, we sing. Christians are commanded to sing. In fact, the Bible contains over 400 references and 50 direct commands to sing. The book of Psalms, which is the longest book of the Bible in regards to the number of pages, is a book of songs. Christians are commanded to sing. There's a few things we can gather from the text this morning about singing. Number one, we are commanded to sing. That's a command, right? You don't sing, you're disobedient. That's just the way the Bible speaks about it. Number two, our songs are to be about Jesus. They're to be filled with the word. As the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, we sing about the word. And three, maybe one that we might stop at, but it's important to look at what I want to focus on this morning, we're to sing with gratefulness and thankfulness in our hearts. And all three of those are important. Paul doesn't stop with just sing and sing the word. He says there's a manner in which we are to sing. There's a posture. There's a, a, an affection that we're supposed to have within us as we sing. And for the, the Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian brothers in this room, this is something I think that we need to take to heart. As we can be committed to, to good doctrine, committed to right thinking, there's also a command to have right feeling, to have right posture and manners to God. And, and the word that Paul uses here is the word uh, in the Greek that can be translated as grace. Haris. That's the word thanks, thankfulness. It can mean it's being influenced upon the heart by the divine. It means gratitude, favor, joy, liberty, pleasure, thankfulness, sweetness, delight. That's what this, this word encapsulates. Right? Those, those are a lot of good affections that we're to feel, aren't they? It's a lot of feeling we're to have in singing to God. So in summary, this is what Paul is saying about singing. Sing. Sing right content. And sing with right feelings, affections, posture, and there's a right manner to which we're to sing. Now, in light of these realities, we can find that there's multiple ways we can be disobedient to this, right? Number one, we cannot sing. We cannot enjoy singing. I think it's lame. I'm going to show up late. I don't like it. I'd rather just stand there and look at the screen. Two, we cannot sing songs that are faithful to the word of Christ. And three, we cannot sing with joyful and grateful and thankful hearts. Now, who at this point in the sermon, in light of that, would say, well, don't need to hear this. I got it aced. I wake up in the morning and I'm singing to Jesus and I've got thanksgiving just overflowing from my heart. Anyone? Oh, you're lying, mom. Yeah. <laughs> right? We don't naturally do this. There is something that resides in us that's called the sinful flesh that remains. That, as Paul writes, is opposed to the things of God. Now, maybe mom, you need to come up here and preach this sermon. Uh, 
That's great. For the, for the rest of us, we don't naturally wake up doing this. We are resistant to God, right? We don't love him perfectly with all of our soul and our strength and our mind. If we did, we would be Jesus. We're not perfect in this. And number one, either we don't like singing, and if we do sing, we definitely don't sing songs of praise to Jesus. We might view praise music, Christian music as lame, right? We'd rather sing our favorite rock song or the latest pop song. And we may even sing. Like, we may have just sung two songs this morning, but our hearts don't even feel anything. Like, our hearts are cold. They're not experiencing or feeling joy or true thankfulness to God in our hearts. And as you see this command of Paul, and you read through the Psalms, you will see that joy, right feeling, gladness, rejoice, thanksgiving is not some sort of, like, optional thing. It's not this cherry on top that, that we're to have. It's required. In fact, I read a book, uh, I was reading a book this week, and a pastor said, where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. So if God is boring to us, if thoughts of God are dead, if we think about God and we're pondering his character and his work, and that doesn't do something deep down inside of us, then we're fooling ourselves if we think that our worship is still genuine and true. Think about it this way. I was, I was at a Mariner game on Friday night. There were three home runs, two grand slams that were hit. It was, it was pretty cool, uh, even though the Mariners lost. To get to see two grand slams in a game it was a pretty cool thing. But there was one Mariner who hit a home run, and when he hit the home run, the announcers didn't have to say, hey, this guy just hit a home run. Everyone, let's stand up and cheer for him. That didn't happen. Right? He hit the home run. You knew it was going out. You can hear the loud crack of the bat. It has a trajectory. This thing is going out. As soon as he hit it, we went to the game. I went to the game with Will. He said, oh, that's out. You could just tell what's happening. And before the announcer could even say, like a home run, everyone just gets up and they start cheering and praising. Their hands are up in the air. He just hit a home run. This is how praise works, right? If you enjoy getting outdoors or, or camping or hiking, you know that someone doesn't have to tell you, hey, when you get to this scenic point and you have this breathtaking view, make sure you feel awe. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, it just happens. You see something beautiful. Right? You see a sunset, you see a breathtaking view, you enjoy it, you praise it. Right? You see your wife in the morning. <laughs> Stephanie, you're beautiful this morning. Wow. Right? And if God is beautiful and glorious and awe-inspiring and breathtaking and wonderful, then when we see him, when we think on him, we can't help but praise him and delight him and rejoice in him. And if that's not happening, either God isn't who he said he is, or there's something wrong in us. And according to the teaching of the Bible, it's because of us. <laughs> it's because of something the Bible calls sin that we are born with and we prefer other things above and over God. We're prone to live as if God isn't the most beautiful and breathtaking and glorious and praiseworthy being, that he's not that special. We're prone to praise created things instead of the creator. As foolish and as bizarre as that seems, we do it. We don't honor God as God. We don't give thanks to him. We, we become futile in our thinking. Our hearts can be darkened, and we exchange God's glory for the glory of immortal man and created things. We exchange truth for lies. We find the glory of material things, cars and clothes and motorcycles and music and art, you name it. 
We enjoy to praise that more, right? Just think about humanity. We pack venues full of people who praise and sing rock stars and, and pop songs. We pack stadiums full of people who praise and worship athletes and sports teams. We pack bars out with people rejoicing and delighting in the latest, funniest comedian. One of the saddest realities is that many church buildings are full of people claiming to worship God, yet their affections for God are dead. Their feelings for God are dead. Their hearts are not moved. They don't overflow in joyful praise. What do we do about that? How do we respond? The word commands that we sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God, that we are grateful and joyful. But in our sin, we resist this, and we're prone to forgetfulness. We forget who God is and what he's done. We're prone to discontentment. We're not thankful. We're grumpy. We're dreary. We're not thankful. We're prone to selfishness. Even if we like to sing, we only like to sing the songs that we like. We want to honor God on our own terms. And maybe I just say, I want to read my Bible and just give. That's enough. Or I want to worship my preferences. Like, I'll only worship if it's hymns or if it's a chorus. If it doesn't have drums and loud clashing cymbals, why even do it, right? What hope do we have when we're faced with our disobedience and the commands of God that we fall short on again and again? How do we increasingly obey all that God has commanded and obey this command to sing with thankfulness in our hearts? The gospel is our only hope. We have to come back to the gospel. Because although none of us have worshipped God perfectly or justly, like he commands and deserves. We have all gone astray and all turned from the truth and found other things better than God. We, we prefer worshiping other things and find other things more satisfying and delightful than God, although we have been ungrateful and not thankful and resistant and bored by God. While we were bored, God sent his son Jesus to live the life that we were created to live. He lived a perfect life, meaning he worshiped God perfectly. He didn't sin. <coughs> While we were faithless, Jesus was faithful. While we were worshiping idols and serving other gods, Jesus was worshiping the Father perfectly. And he came and he died on the cross. He, was sac- he became the sacrifice because God was so committed to his glory and to the joy of his people that he was going to be about creating new creations, new worshipers of spirit and truth who would have new hearts, who would truly enjoy him as he really is. He was that committed to his mission that he sent Jesus to make it happen. To go to the cross, to die for our false worship, to become the sacrifice for our sins, to kill the power and the stronghold of sin that so easily ensnares us and deceives us and leads us to believe that God is not glorified glorious and great and perfect. And Jesus paid the penalty for our sin that, that we have been born with and that we have committed. And he died on the cross, killing sin and satisfying the wrath of God and paying the penalty for our disobedience. And he rose again on the third day, showing, I have power over everything. Sin, Satan, and death, they can't hold me. I am the son of God. 
He proved himself more powerful than our greatest enemy. And just as Jesus died and was buried and was raised to walk again, anyone who repents of their sins and turns to trust in Jesus can have a new heart. They can die. The old self can die. And they can be raised to walk in newness of life. That's what we're celebrating with baptism. It's a symbol of this reality, what's going on in our hearts. And we grow to increasingly follow him more deeply and worship him more dearly. We're given the spirit, the promised spirit who sanctifies us and changes our hearts to actually love God. And this happens as we continually repent of our sin, all the ways in which we still find other things more satisfying and and beautiful than Jesus, and we ask for the Spirit to keep changing us. It doesn't happen through, well, if I just try really hard, if I just sing more, then somehow this joy, it comes through asking God to change us as we repent and come back to Jesus and believe in the gospel more deeply. And as we do this, as we have a new spirit, we are made new, we get to sing a new song. A song that is so much better than any song that is written by man. A song that is about the salvation and grace and redemption of God through Jesus on our behalf. I don't go to many concerts, and it was a while ago. I went to a concert at the Key Arena. I think it was Blake Shelton. And I was homeschooled. I was pretty sheltered growing up. And at this concert, I just remember it was so weird. Blake Shelton came up, and he started singing, and you know, he's got a great voice, and he sings some good songs. And people just start raising up their hands like this. I was like, what? What's going on? Like, I thought only Christians did this. <laughs> right? Innocent and little homeschooled Daniel. <laughs> but I just kept thinking, man, if, if uh, Blake Shelton is pretty great, right? But isn't Jesus better? Right? Like, isn't this just like a counterfeit of the real deal? Like, Jesus is, I mean, what can Blake Shelton do for you, right? Sing a little tune for you and make you a little happy? Like, Jesus can give you a new life. He gives you a new inheritance that's undefiled and unperishing. Blake Shelton can't do that. Jesus is so much better, isn't he? Right, so as Christians, we go to Mariner games or Sounder games or Seahawks games, and we say, man, that goal and that, or that touchdown, that home run, that was, that was glorious. That was nothing compared to Jesus. That was a pointer to the glory of Jesus. Right? In light of the gospel and how Jesus is our hero, he's conquered sin and we're made alive in him. And in light of how God has given us a new song, we want to sing. Do you want to sing? As a church, we do this every Lord's Day. Every Sunday, we gather together and we sing about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We sing about his great love for us and we sing because we are commanded to. We sing because we have a song to sing, but ultimately we sing because we can't help but praise God for his goodness and his grace shown to us in the gospel. Amen? We sing songs about Jesus and his love for us, and we sing out of an overflow of thanksgiving and our hearts to God. So let's sing. Amen? Let's sing as a way of remembering God's word. I pray that, that we would learn to sing and remember all that God has done for us through his word. And, and a helpful tip as we do this is, as we sing songs, try not to be so focused or uh, enslaved to the screen. Like, try to memorize the lyrics and close your eyes. Try to remember the songs each week. 
We sing as a way to reflect upon the gospel. Right? Lyrics are often sung slower than we would read and speak, and in this way, we want this, the lyrics to saturate our hearts. Right? As we sing, too, we're reflecting the unifying power of the gospel. Right, right now, there's, there's pitch and there's tone in my voice, right? but when I'm speaking, it's random and it's, it fluctuates. Right? If I was trying to get all of you guys to follow my voice as I'm preaching, it would be super hard. But if we take a melody and we set words to a melody and, and words are set to a, tu- to a tune, we can sing with one voice. It's one of the most beautiful things that happens on a Sunday morning is, is singing. We're unified. We're showing the power of the gospel. We sing as a way of preparing our hearts for the word. We want God to prepare us to be receptive and open to how God's word might be speaking to us that morning. And this is why it's important to show up on time. We, start, we, we try to start at 9.30. And this is why we, we sing a couple songs before the sermon. We want to prepare our hearts, right? It, it makes a difference. I'm just going to be honest. Like Will and I can tell where, where the hearts of the church is at oftentimes when we sing. It's not a guilt trip, but this is the importance of being on time or being, hey, maybe being early and fellowshipping. It's a good, it's a good thing. When we show up late and we're anxious and we're, we, we leave a few minutes later than we should and it can, our hearts can be kind of distracted and, and is bustled the right word? Bustled or distracted? We also sing as a way of responding to the word preach. We sing as a way of responding to the gospel being proclaimed because the gospel gives us a song to sing. We sing because... The gospel makes, uh, singing makes the gospel real to our hearts, right? And it engages our emotions and our affections. I'm, I'm not a very emotional guy. But there's something about singing that it can make the truths of God and the gospel real to our hearts that we can be overwhelmed. I'm sure this, you've had this happen to you before as well. Lastly, we sing as a way of repenting of our sin and our unbelief and our calloused hearts. I don't presume or expect that you would all come in here and your just hearts are overflowing in joy and you're just ready to praise. But what singing can do is show us what, where our hearts should be at and provide a metric that we can, God, I'm not feeling this. Help me. It's a way of rep- like showing us to repent and, and show us our unbelief. I'm reminded of something that Kelly said uh, as she was at Austin Stone and, and they were singing a song that we sing as well called... Uh, more like Jesus. And, and you know the song, More Like Jesus, there's lyrics in there that say, if more of you is all I need, take, take all of me. That's the right the way it goes, Will. Yeah. Take everything. Yeah. Right, and th- in this moment, Kelly was, Kelly was saying that she realized the weight of what that would look like if she really believed it. Right? Like if all of you, God, is all I need, take everything. And, and singing has a way of showing us I mean, man, right? we delight in you, God. We sing with glad and joyful hearts. And, and as we do that and we sing, we're, we are to still sing, but it can be a way of showing us, God, I, I'm not feeling this. Help me. Spirit, make me feel, heart. Like we're, in a sense, we're almost singing to our heart, like heart, believe this. Set this before the word, like I want God, you're, you're most glorious. I believe that with my mind, but heart, come on, wake up, be alive, feel this. Does that make sense? Like, the worst thing we can do is not sing. I'm just going to be honest. Like, let's sing, and even if our hearts aren't engaged, let's sing to our hearts. Like, come on, heart. Move along here. 
When we look at our measurables, what, is, what does it look like and sound like in light of what we do on Sunday gathering as it aligns with proclaiming the gospels and it aligns with our value of being committed to the scriptures and the gospel and, and singing unifies us, it builds community and it pushes us out to be on God's mission as we proclaim his name. This looks and sounds like singing. And it can look like a variety of things, right? There's not one posture of praise and submission and surrender to God. But often it looks like with hands raised, right? Like a kid coming to their father, dad, pick me up. It can look like bowing your knees and bowing your heads, surrendering. It looks like closing your eyes and or there's tons of the postures that we can worship Jesus in, but it looks like a posture that reflects what our hearts are, are to be and feel before God. It sounds like joyful, loud praise to God. And this is one of the best, most encouraging times that I have when I, oftentimes I preach and I feel like, oh, that was a dud, or I just got up there for 45 minutes and rambled on. That preaching has a way of unifying and edifying the body, doesn't it? We sing together and it just feels good. So let's sing. And let's sing songs even when they're not our preferred style. Because we want to worship God and not our preferences, Right? We want to reflect the humility and the unity that the gospel produces in our lives and in our church because if, if, I not, if I don't find this song like my favorite, but the person next to me does, let's be unified and sing it together. Let's sing, even when we don't feel like singing or think that singing is lame, not out of some sort of forced obligation or duty, but as a way of worship and praying and pleading with God to change our hearts, to make us believe that he is better. Let's sing as a way of repenting and asking God for us to experience the realities of the lyrics that we're singing. And let's sing as those who are curious and skeptical and exploring the claims of Jesus are gathering with us. Right? We don't want to be hypocritical and a poor witness as we're singing songs to Jesus. Right? Christians? I'm just speaking to Christians in this room now. Someone's exploring Christianity and they're coming in and, and we're just kind of like, oh, Jesus is better. What is that showing about Jesus, man? Jesus is better, isn't he? Someone's curious about Jesus? Let's show him. Hey, he's the most worthy to be praised. Nothing's better than Jesus. Those who don't yet know Jesus are listening to us. They're watching. Let's sing. Let's sing it like we mean it. And finally, let's sing to encourage and build up our brothers and sisters. For those in this room right now who might be discouraged, deceived, or burdened, let's sing as a way of lifting them up and reminding them of the truth of the gospel. Amen? Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures foreverness and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray and let's sing.